0: Notice again Peter's approach to civil disobedience. We must obey God rather than men. For Peter, as before in Acts 4, this meant continuing to preach the gospel even when commanded not to by civil authorities. As you will soon see, it also meant gladly bearing any punishment the government saw fit to hand down. This isn't Peter protesting government corruption he's got bigger fish to fry. This is Peter doing what Jesus said to do, no matter the price he must pay. That is what civil disobedience looks like in
1: the Bible. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. This is the second chapter in a row that shows the church engaged in an increasingly intense confrontation with the Jewish state. It is getting harder and harder for the church to render unto Caesar what he is due in a way that renders unto God what he is due. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your
0: word is a lamp unto my feet Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Acts chapter 5. At the end of Acts chapter 4, we were given a snapshot of the early Christian community. We were told that with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them. And brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. That sounds fantastic. That sounds pretty close to ideal, and that makes the story that we meet next in Luke's narrative very important. The story of Ananias and Sapphira reminds us that the early church was not all romance and glory. Yes, it was filled with the Spirit, but it was also very human, as all true churches have been down across the ages. Luke does not intend to portray the early church as some sort of golden era. It was not. There has never been a golden era in the history of Christianity. All our heroes, apart from Jesus, are flawed and fallen, and all our ages have been marked by progress and regression. The church will not be perfect until that day when she sees the Lord and is finally and forever changed. Until that day, we will have stories like this one, stories of failure, scandal, And embarrassment. Luke doesn't analyze that. He doesn't philosophize here. He just tells us the truth. And that too is important. This story reminds us that Luke is a reliable historian. He could have left this out. It does not help the cause, it does not commend the church, but it's true. And it happened. And it tells us some things about God, about us, and about how God rules over his church by word and spirit. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, it is often argued here that Ananias and Sapphira are motivated by a desire to appear as pious and generous as Barnabas, who was mentioned in the last chapter. In Acts 4, 36-37, we were told that Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet, Acts four thirty six to 37 Now, this sort of extraordinary generosity was no doubt well remarked upon in the early church, and Ananias and Sapphira were perhaps jealous of all the attention that Barnabas had received, and as a result, they thought to imitate his generosity and thereby share in his acclaim. But they went about it in a deceitful manner. They sold the property for more than they claimed, and they kept a portion of the proceeds for themselves. Now, Peter makes it very clear that they were free to do whatever they wanted with the money. They could have given 10% or 50%, 80%, 100% or 0%. It was their money. They could do with it whatever they wanted. But they said that they had given 100% when actually they had not. And that was the problem. They lied. And in doing so, they invited the judgment and the anger of the Holy Spirit. Verse 3. is last and great fear came upon all who heard of it the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him now to be clear it doesn't say here that peter cursed ananias and neither does it say that god killed ananias it just says that he fell down dead when he heard peter's opinion of his behavior so maybe he had a heart attack the text doesn't say It just says he was found out, he was called out, and then he died and was carried out. That's the sequence in the story. Now, we should also just notice in passing that Peter assumes here the deity, of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse verse 3 that Ananias has lied to the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 4, he says that he has lied not to man, but to God. So, obviously, Holy Spirit equals God, according to Peter. File that away for future conversations about the Trinity. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, this is the part of the story where people tend to get upset. We don't know exactly how Ananias died, but it looks pretty clear here that Sapphira died under some sort of curse and or action of God. I'm sure that there are many reasons why God took the action that he did here, but at least one of those reasons is likely to remind us that the God of the New Testament church is not a different God than the God of the Old Testament church. This is the first time that Luke uses the word church in the book of Acts, and it's kind of an odd time to do that, but I think a helpful time. Far too often we hear people say things like, well, that was in the Old Testament, but God isn't like that anymore. Well, here we have a story that looks very much like something you might find in the Old Testament. In fact, many scholars point out how similar this story is to the story of Achan in the book of Joshua. F.F. Bruce, for example, says the story of Ananias is to the book of Acts what the story of Achan is to the book of Joshua in both narratives, an act of deceit interrupts the victorious progress of the people of God. Closed quote. Sounds like Old Testament and New. God will not bless or prosper deceit. The more the Lord is blessing, the more obviously he is associated with a movement or with the expansion of the covenant community, the more he will safeguard the honor of his name through rigorous and immediate discipline. That seems to be the point of these stories, Old Testament and New. And that point appears to have been fairly obvious to those who participated in and observed immediately these actual events. Look again at verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Great fear came upon the whole church because they were freshly reminded
1: that their God was a holy God. Hey, Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here because you mentioned in the program audio that this story about Ananias and Sapphira feels like an Old Testament story, and it does. It really does feel like it's in the wrong half of the Bible. So why is it here? What do you think was in Luke's mind when he made the decision to tell this story? Well, I don't know what was in his mind, but I'm really glad that the Holy Spirit
0: prompted him to record the story because I think it helps us to develop realistic expectations about the church. I hear people say all the time, I'm not following Jesus anymore because I went to church and there were jerks there. (laughs) And I feel like saying, I'm sorry that happened, but what did you expect? What led you to believe that if you gather a group of recently converted people into a room that there won't be any sin and stupid there? (laughs) It's certainly not reading the Bible that leads us to that conclusion.
1: Fair point.
0: I mean, Really. I, I mean, friends, according to the Bible, the church is not a collection of perfect people. Rather, it is an assembly of redeemed people who are being renewed by one degree of glory to the next. So until that process is completed, there will be remaining sin in each of us, and that will make church complicated and a little bit
1: bloody I don't see any way around that. I mean, I can say amen to that, but to say <laughs> that is not to excuse sinful behavior as if it doesn't really matter, right? No, exactly.
0: Well, the point of this story is to say that judgment begins at the household of God. So everybody needs to deal with their nonsense immediately.
1: Yes, exactly. This story is raising the bar on holiness while at the same time adjusting the bar in terms of our expectations for what life in the church is really going to be like. There is a little bit of a paradox here.
0: Yes, which explains verse 13, which we haven't got to yet, but which says, None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Acts 5.13. That sounds like they were attracted to the church, but also cautious about joining. Because joining would mean being forced to work on all their junk. So if you weren't serious about that, then maybe better not to join at all.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I like that idea about being realistic while also being resolved to work on your own sin. Keeping those two things together in our minds, I think would be very useful. Absolutely. All right, well, thanks for that. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 12. Now,
0: many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them These signs and wonders served to authenticate the apostles as the successors of the ministry and message of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that's the only reason for signs and wonders. I am just saying that is the reason that is obviously in focus here. The apostles were preaching a new message. This was not repackaged, reheated Judaism. This was different. Now, of course, it came out of Judaism, but it was new wine and to demonstrate that this new message, this new wine was from God. It was accompanied by signs, wonders, and miracles. It proved to people that God was at work and God was speaking through the new covenant church. Verse 17, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Now, just quickly, once again, notice that in the Acts of the Apostles, it is the Sadducees who are most opposed to the Christian church. In the Gospels, it was the Pharisees very often in the front seat and the Sadducees very often in the back seat. But here now, they appear to have switched places. And in fact, we will soon discover that many Pharisees have converted and joined the church. Verse 19, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. When they had brought them, they set them before the council. And The high priest questioned them, saying, "'We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us.' But Peter and the apostles answered, "'We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree.' God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Notice again Peter's approach to civil disobedience. We must obey God rather than men. For Peter, as before in Acts 4, this meant continuing to preach the gospel. Even when commanded not to by civil authorities, as you will soon see, it also meant gladly bearing any punishment the government saw fit to hand down. This isn't Peter protesting government corruption. He's got bigger fish to fry. This is Peter doing what Jesus said to do, no matter the price he must pay. That is what civil disobedience looks like in the Bible. Notice also in verse 32, this amazing statement about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, according to Peter, is a witness to Christ and is given to those who obey him. Wow! The proper study of that verse could solve two or three major problems right now within Christendom. I love what John Stott says here. He says, God's people are under obligation to obey him. And if they do so, even though they may suffer when they have to disobey human authorities... They will be richly rewarded by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, closed quote. Amen. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is jesus again this is what civil disobedience looks like in the bible they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of jesus then they left the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name and every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that the christ is jesus they were opposed they were threatened they were beaten And they rejoiced, and more than that, they kept right on preaching the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks
1: be to God. Amen. Pastor Paul, I want to go back to what you were talking about there at the end of the program audio. I remember we talked about this a few months ago when we were looking at Matthew 22, You said there that God is sovereign over all. He is ultimately authoritative. But then you also said that God delegates a certain amount of authority to lesser but legitimate authorities, your parents, the magistrate, the elders in your church. So you have to obey them, too, unless they command you to do what God forbids or forbid you to do what God commands. Well, here we see that happening to the apostles. Once again, they are being told not to preach in the name of Jesus, and so they say, we must obey God rather than men. Okay, my concern is that this feels like a principle that could easily be abused by a casual Bible reader. Someone might read this and say, all right, Mom, I know you just told me to clean my room, but I must obey God rather than men, wink, wink. So how do we keep people from abusing this principle, which is really an exception rather than the rule? Yeah, that's a good question. First thing I would say is that if you're going to disobey
0: a lesser but legitimate authority, then you better be dealing with a clear command from the Bible. You can't say, we must obey God rather than men, just because you don't want to clean your room. There is no verse in the Bible commanding us to live in our own (laughs) filth. But if your parents tell you to get an abortion, all right, that's a whole different story. Now you have to say, we must obey God rather than men, because thou shalt not
1: kill, actually is a commandment in the Bible. Okay, but what about back during the pandemic? Most churches were willing to comply with the restrictions, but some people said on that occasion, we must obey God rather than men. Why were there so much disagreement around that?
0: Well, listen, first of all, I want to say how much I respect anyone who's willing to go to prison for the sake of their religious convictions. I don't have any malice toward the pastors and leaders who made the decisions they did to disobey the government protocols during COVID, so long as they made those decisions out of personal conviction. I've been in personal contact with some of those men. I respect why they did what they did. But I'm also on the record as disagreeing with that decision for the simple reason that I could not locate a clear command. Now, you might say, what about Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, which talks about not neglecting to meet together? What about that? Well, we'd wrestled with that, believe me, but that text doesn't say anything about when we meet or how we meet or whether we have to gather the whole congregation together into one room. It just says we mustn't neglect our meetings. Well, did churches that complied with the protocols neglect their meetings during the pandemic? I have a pastor friend in Toronto who had a smaller congregation, and so in the worst days of COVID, he conducted 17 small services for 10 people every week. Was he neglecting to bring his people together because he didn't gather all 170 of his mostly older flock into one room to worship God all at the same time? Or is there some flexibility around the hows and the wheres of Christian gathering? I think there is. I think you see it in this chapter. Acts 5.42 says, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So it sounds like they had large group meetings and small group meetings, and it was all church because they were together in some form or another teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. That was my understanding, and that was our understanding as a church. But I happily acknowledge that it was complicated, and my point here is just to say that if you are going to disobey the state, then you need to have a clear command from God. The apostles in this story had a clear command from God. It was clear and it was confirmed. Look again at verses 19 to 21. It says, But during the night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So the apostles had the great commission confirmed to them by an angel of God. And on that basis, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So what I'm arguing for here is simply clarity and caution. In the heat of battle, when tempers are high, it's easy to see whatever you want to see in the text. Douglas Moo, in his commentary on Romans 13, where Paul reiterates and expands upon this teaching, says, few passages of Scripture have been studied and analyzed over the years more than Romans 13:1 1-7. This history of interpretation has largely been the history of attempts to avoid what the passage at first sight plainly seems to be saying, closed quote. So if you catch yourself doing that, slow down and seek confirmation. That's all I'm saying, because you need a clear command before you apply Acts 529 to whatever grievance you may
1: have with the government. All right. Well, thank you for that. That makes a ton of sense. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.